This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Tuesday, June 8th, 2010, and this is episode 30. Once again, I am Paul Fox, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Mr. Kevin Ma. How are you doing, everybody? How's it going, Kevin? Uh, pretty good, Paul. How about you? Uh, not too bad. This is our 30th show. Kind of yeah. kind of hard to believe. Uh, not not too much longer. We'll be hitting the big 5-0. I guess that means we're pretty soon going to be over the hill. How do you feel about that? <laughs> or I was going to say maybe it'll be our golden anniversary, but I didn't want to seem too homoerotic. So. <laughs> <laughs> is it what, what? No, is the... Is the fiftieth golden? Is that? I think it's a golden one. Yeah. So it's platinum. Is like platinum or platinum or diamond? I, I... see. Now I you gotta know. go on. I don't know. I've never been involved in any. Well, so silver is like twenty five, right? So we've already passed the the, the silver thing. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm surprised. We're at thirty and we're plugging along. Um, so this is the show, for those of you who have not joined us before, where we talk about movies from Hong Kong to Hollywood and many things in between. So we hope to have some very good films to talk with you about this week. But before we get into talking about our films, let's talk about some news. So up first this week on, some, on our East Screen news segments, uh, the first bit of news we want to talk about a little bit political. Uh, Taiwan has decided to pull out of the Shanghai International Film Festival. And this is a story coming from the Film Biz Asia website. And, you know, the relationship between China and Taiwan is always somewhat tense. Uh, it doesn't take too much to set one side or the other side off. So apparently, as I read through this article, basically what happened is that uh, the, the, the commission in Shanghai, if I can find uh, the correct section, um, they had basically listed the films um, coming from uh, Taiwan as being from Taiwan, comma, China. Um, I guess this was in the official documentation, such as on the website and in the festival program. And this sent the various bureaus and commissions in Taiwan uh, into a bit of a frenzy, and they decided to pull uh, the entire range of films that were going to be shown in, in this section. It was to be called the Taipei Film Week, which was originally going to be held between June 14th to June 19th. So, I don't know, this, this seems like a bit of an extreme move, but I guess if you're sort of on the pro-Taiwan side, um, you you probably would think that this is justified, and if you're on the pro-China side, that uh, you think this is, is uh, probably an overreaction. W what's your take on this, Kevin? What do you think about this? This isn't the first time that it's happened. Uh, I think it's happened at uh, sports events, at least the ones that are in China, where there was a controversy about, I think it was an Olympic, Olympics, actually, where they had to decide what to call Taiwan in the Beijing Olympics. And I think they ended up, uh, in the report, it says the label is uh, the label that's usually more accepted is Taipei China. But I think the more uh, correct or the more politically correct one would be Chinese Taipei or Chinese Taiwan, which uh, makes sense to me. I mean, it's kind of... It kind of keeps there, keeps face because the word Chinese is in there, but for Taiwan, it doesn't mention the 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 what's the word national attachment, I suppose. Yeah. So I think that's the more safe word, and I'm not surprised that a a Chinese organization pull off a sneaky, a little sneak attack like that, and I'm not surprised that the the Taipei Film Commission pulled out. Hmm. Well, uh, as as I read the article here, it said. Um that there were about, I guess, eight films that had been scheduled to be seen, including Ma Manga, uh, Au Revoir, Taipei, Hear Me, More Than Close, uh, among others. And they had a whole lineup of a bunch of big stars, including uh, Wang Li Hong, Barbie Tsu, Kelly Lin, and even director John Woo, who were scheduled to make an appearance. I think that there are, um, there are, there are 
there are a couple shows and a couple people who still plan to attend despite the cancellation. And it says this is a major setback for the big budget movie adaption of the film Black and White, which had planned a lot of promotional activities at the festival as well. So, I mean, we can we can sort of look at this from the outside and, and think, oh, you know, this they're kind of making a mountain out of a molehill, but this could have some serious ramifications for some filmmakers, their films, and, you know, some some people who've actually invested money in this. So I can imagine this has made quite a few people seriously unhappy, this decision. Yeah, um, these kind of things happen all the time. I mean, remember when Sydney Film Festival showed the the documentary about the leader of the uh, Uyghurs? Yeah. Um, all the Chinese, the Chinese uh, films pulled out, and when... Um, I think Yang Yang or Hear Me, um, Yang Yang I think pulled out um, because it had uh, Chinese producers, but then the Taiwanese government uh, said if you pull out, then then we're gonna want our money back because it was made partly with a uh, with a government subsidy. Hmm. So this happens all the time. It, it, it kind of this this line between China, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan is getting blurred all the time. These co-productions, and and I think the the political climate hasn't really caught up to that blur. Yeah, it's 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 a shame too because you would think something like film is kind of there to solidify relationships and and try to bridge the gap and bridge understanding. And as I look at the picture on the uh, from the flyer that's posted on the website, uh, they've got Shanghai and Taipei in you know big font, and then between the two they've got images, silhouette images of the tower with a sort of a line connecting the two structures and then two people sort of uh, walking this line or this tightrope meeting in the middle. Yeah, it looks like know? a tightrope, you know, yeah. talking about how, how fragile this whole <laughs> relationship is. But it's like, you know, it's feels. just just a few more words and a, and a comma shatters this whole dynamic. It shatters this whole thing. So, I, I you know, for, I've really for a long time I've kind of felt I really wish that these two sides could work out their differences and come to some kind of a conclusion. I, I don't think that whatever conclusion they would come to would satisfy everybody. You know, you're not going to please all the people all of the time. But it's it's really counterproductive when they when they go through these fits like this. I mean, and it's a, it's, it's a shame to really see it affecting film the way it's affecting film here. Well, I would say it's kind of counterproductive to keep hundreds of missiles pointed at one country, but what do I know? <laughs> All right, our second film, our second bit of news for East Screen this week is talking about the Phuket Festival. And so, Kevin, you have a little bit of a background information on this bit of news? Yeah, well, those poor uh, people over at the Phuket Film Festival planned uh, 10 days of their latest film festival. It was supposed to start last Friday, but because of really, really low attendance, they've had to cut it at the last minute to seven days, which means that um, several films have been canceled, uh, some some screens have been canceled, and it's, it's uh, because of weather, apparently, most of these things are. Hmm. Like, Phuket is a, is a resort-based, uh, I think it's a tourism-based economy. Um, I have a friend that works at a resort there, so I'm sure she knows all about that. Um, so the, when, when something like bad weather uh, uh, hits a place like this, it's going to really affect something like a film festival. Mm. So um, people are people are pissed because, uh, of course, uh, directors who are expecting to show up to screenings of their films now are, are canceling their trips or having to shorten their trips or not be able to show their films. Yeah, so it's too bad. But um, I think someone put, on, put it, put it um, correctly on Twitter is that I would rather have canceled screenings rather than empty seats. Yeah, so... Well, I mean, the the article itself is is citing the the bad weather, but I'm wondering have the recent political troubles in Thailand played a factor at all? Because I know that I've gotten several uh, missives or emails from the uh, the American consulate saying, you know, you shouldn't go to Thailand if you've got travel plans. You should cancel them and. Just last week, I was reading in the local paper, they were saying that, okay, Thailand's back now. Everything's, you know, sort of settled down. But I'm wondering if that, you know, there's still sort of this 
uh, negative fallout that people just think about Thailand and they 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 just don't want to travel there right now because of the instability. I think so, but it's sad because um, Phuket is actually not is fairly peaceful throughout all this. It's only been Bangkok, and my friend who was on she said on Twitter that you know thanks for the emails, but everything's okay. Like I mean Phuket, nothing is happening over there. Mm. So and I like it's too bad that everyone kind of groups these things together from. Um, yeah, they, they think something happened in Bangkok and think it's happening in the whole country. And just, you know, I, I don't blame them, but it's too bad. Mm. All right, it's time to talk about our East Screen film for this week, and that is the new Hong Kong film, Gallants. Um, so, Kevin, do you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis of this uh, this nostalgic film? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't really grow up watching uh, kung fu films, uh, unlike uh, the Hong Kongers of the generation before me, but... Um, I think even if you didn't grow up with, with Kung Fu, if you've seen a few Kung Fu films, I think you would have a lot of fun at a film like Gallants. Uh, Gallants is the first first uh, film that marks the relaunch of the Andy Lau um, Focus Fight project, which he, he hopes to produce a series of action films. Uh, They're low budget or at least mid budget uh, that would promote new filmmakers. So it's getting off to a great start with Gallants. Uh, it features... Uh, a cast of old Shaw Brothers martial arts uh, actors, uh, Chen Kui Tai um, and Lern Siu Long, um, and also uh, Teddy Robin. I'm not sure Teddy Robin was in any action films. Paul, I don't think he was an action well, actor. He was, right? he was a, a he, well, I mean, comedy actor. He he started out as a musician, and then the films that he started doing were mostly comedy films. I mean, he was in. Uh, I can recall some like. Uh, um, more like cat and mouse kind of uh, cops and robbers types of films for the most part. Right. Um, and sometimes there, the, you know, he would have some phys- physical action to do in those roles, but not, not so much like the, the themes that were given here with gallants. Right. So it's very strange that a, a figure like Teddy Robin would be playing uh, Chen Quin Tai and, and Lern Siu Long's master. Really, that's that's actually the best part of the movie. So I'll leave that uh, a little bit later. Um, but Gallants is is uh, kind of an appeal, I guess, to the young generation. Uh, kind of appeal for for them to, I guess, kind of appreciate the old kung fu films because uh, it, it, it's a story told from the perspective of the young. Uh, Wong Yao Nam of um, Shine, the, the the pop duo, he stars as a kind of pathetic, uh, kind of a loser character. Um, who is sent to a village uh, in rural Hong Kong to essentially work out this this uh, redevelopment scheme? And he he managed, he he enters the village and he's bullied by a group of gangsters, and he's immediately saved by um, an old man played by Lern Siu Long. Now Lern Siu Long and his and his uh, I guess brother or his um, what's the correct English word here? I think his. Um, Si Heng, what's the English yeah, translation? This is basically his, uh, his, his comrade in Kung Fu, I guess. Right, like, yeah. uh, like, his, el- like his comrade brother yeah. or something. Like his blood brother, I suppose. Yeah, you can In Kung Fu. Yeah. yeah. They, they run a, they run a, a restaurant um, that used to be, used to be a dojo. I get, no, not even used the word dojo. It used to be a martial arts school. Yeah, Kung Fu school. Uh, Kung Fu school run by the Teddy Robin character. Um, but uh, they they've kept it alive, and the only way to keep it alive is turn into a restaurant because uh, their master has been in a coma for thirty years. Now Wang Yaolam he wants to um, he realizes he meets his kung fu masters, and he, he kind of is inspired to learn how to defend himself. So he asks uh, the two masters to become his sifu. Um, but then it turns out that uh, the gangsters who bully him are actually supposed to be his comrades in in in, in reclaiming these old buildings. 
But um, one night, uh, the Teddy Robin character, their their master, uh, wakes up from his coma, and um, he he apparently doesn't know or doesn't realize that it's been thirty years. So he mistakes uh, uh, the young Wonyo Nam as his disciples and uh, the two older disciples as his disciples' disciples. So um, while while the Teddy Robin character he, he's trying to um, readjust to to being in a coma for 30 years, um, they also the school also joins this tournament that will put them up against the the gangsters, uh, including uh, MC Jin, who who plays um, an old childhood friend of the Wang Nam character and now has learned Kung Fu and wants revenge for for their childhood grudge. So um, it becomes this sort of ragtag uh, misfits versus this rich uh a group of developers uh, in this kind of small kung fu war. Um, it's all kind of fun. It's all a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of throwback to the old uh, martial art films, especially in the beginning, uh, when you see them using the, they the, the try to do the scratch effect, um, the old film stock effect. And uh, you have the Tom Bing Mun and an old school actor who's doing a narration. Um, the directors, uh, Clement Chang and Derek Kwok, they're trying to kind of introduce bring back this old genre of Kung Fu films and they try to adjust it for, for young, young people and, and, and try to create this look. And um, I, I think it was a lot of fun. Um, even though the directing isn't very smooth, uh, at points I think the pacing is a little off, uh, the way they direct the certain, certain sh- uh, editing or certain shots aren't really the best. Uh, the whole film kind of looked out of focus. Um, I'm not sure if it was a dynasty or whatever. Um, so there were some problems with the directing, but uh, overall, I think they're they're compensated by a lot of the fun moments. Um, especially when Teddy Robin shows up, he he shows up. Uh, I think around thirty minutes into the film, uh, when he wakes up from the coma, it just steals the movie right away. Mm. Um, he's very fun to watch, and uh, even though he's not a kung fu master or he he never really shows. I don't think he has a, a real fight scene in the film, right, Paul? Uh, well, he does. He does have the one where. Yeah, in in the alley, um, right. The, very he, short. It's very short, and he starts to get into it, and then it's it's sort of interrupted. Um, right. So even though he's not, he doesn't get to really. He's not really a martial arts actor, and it shows. He he really steals the the. He has a lot of um presence. Uh, he he he's always even though he's the shortest one in the scene, almost constantly. He's the smallest figure in the scene, but he's always the biggest because he he's just throwing out these one-liners, he's swearing left and right, and he's screaming at people, and he's slapping their heads, and he's smacking people, people and it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, however, the young, the young generations, isn't, the young actors aren't so great, because you have these actors like Chen Quan Tai, and Lun Siu Long, and Teddy Robbins, these people have been acting for 30 years, and you have young actors like Wan Yo Lam, or you have MC Jin, who's, I think is, this is his second film. Um, and you know it's obvious that they're just not as good in comparison. Um, MC Jin does does have a few great lines because he does pull out his rapper persona once in a while, and uh, and it's kind of fun to watch. Um, so good thing he he doesn't really he doesn't really have a lot to do in the movie except being the bad guy. Um, also, maybe I think it's the budget. I think the the choreography of the action is is kind of lacking. Um, the beginning, uh, the first scene, I think, of Learn Siu Long, uh, when he fights the gangster, that was pretty exciting to watch because um, just like most, most, I guess, appearance scene of the, of the Kung Fu Master, they're always good to watch. But um, the, the, the fights kept coming. I thought I was a little disappointed that it didn't, that the choreography didn't really didn't do anything for me, considering that these people are, you know, masters at, at, their, at their art. Mm. Um, like I said, you know, Terry Robin didn't really get to show off his, whatever martial arts skills that he might have or his master character might have. And, um, and the very, the final fight, which is the kind of the climax of the film, um, it kind of ended too early for me. Hmm. uh, Anyway. um, So, so a little bit lacking there, even though it's, it's a, it's fun to watch Lan Siulong and Chun Quan Tai doing their thing again, because I think these two actors haven't been doing much martial arts movie lately. I think uh, last I saw Chun Quan Tai, if I remember was a murderer. Um, and I think Lun Siu Long was kind of controlled where he was restrained by the special effects in Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, so he didn't really, he hasn't really got to do a lot of really good martial arts scenes, I think, in the last couple of years. Um, 
So it's good to see him back in action, but like I said, it's a little lacking uh, overall for a film that's trying to sell the kung fu genre. Um, again, it's, it, the nostalgia is really fun to watch. Um, for people who've seen at least a few of these old school kung fu movies, I think you have a good time just looking at all the stylistic references or or just uh, the zooms and the and the and the scratched film look and everything. But the film is trying to sell the genre to the young. And what I'm wondering is if, if the young generation will get the film. Uh, it hasn't done well in, in the cinemas in Hong Kong. It didn't do well, I think, in China over the weekend. Uh, and sadly, the young people are the people who are spending money to go to the movies these days. So will gallants connect to the young? And that's where I throw it to you, Paul. What do you think? Yeah, it, it's. I think that as, uh, as uh, Ross had written in his review... Uh, this is a really hard sell of a movie. Um, it, you're trying to pitch it to the younger generation. It, it's interesting too if you if you if you search around, you can actually see that the mainland China poster is different from the Hong Kong poster. And the mainland, you know, the poster for China is sort of this very nostalgic, old style painted poster that you would find for some of the old Shaw films. Um, tr- trying to draw on that sense of nostalgia, but the Hong Kong poster is kind of f- just sort of bland and basic. It's you know um, sort of a wide shot of all the main characters sitting around in the in the school together. So I guess you can get some some of the emphasis on uh, Wang Yaonam and JJ who are in that shot, but they're not on the the, the more traditional poster, which is very much focusing on those classic. Uh, actors who who you know do take up a good part of the film. The this film is great. I mean, if you're somebody who loves the old Shaw stuff, um, you love kung fu films. You, you've even if you've only dabbled in them, there's a lot here that's kind of fun and referencing those. You, you did mention um, some of the shots being out of focus. I noticed that too, and I wasn't sure if it was the theater that we were in because we were in the in the dynasty, which <laughs> doesn't have the the best screens or projection, but it's just a fun theater. Um, but I was talking to uh, Tim, who was on with us a couple weeks back, and who had seen it in another venue, and he, he was telling me that it, it's sort of intentional, um, mm. the way that they were using focus to try and match some of the film styles of the old Shaw films. So it'll be interesting to see how that carries over when they put this on DVD and Blu-ray, um, if you're going to have these, you know, sort of high-definition pictures, but they're blurry, um, if that if that'll you know, if if that'll come across or not. I thought the cast was really really good. I mean, it was some very solid performances. I really loved um, Teddy Robin. I mean, he he stole the show, as you said. But I also really liked um, Lang Siulong here. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he he was great. I mean. I even even I felt the young young characters were good. Um, I'm not a big fan of JJ, um, but I think for what she was given, she she handled it very well. She didn't come across as you know trying to be just JJ, which she seems to be in a lot of her roles that she's done. Um, <laughs> Wang Yao Nam, uh, I I liked in in the role. Um, he's he gives us a sense of. You know th- that very traditional notion of you know the kid who's trying to get this really good sifu to teach him kung fu, you know this really good master and and the things he'll go through in order to do so. Um, wasn't too impressed with MC Jin. Um, he has a scene where he kind of throws out some yo yo dog dialogue in English, which I thought felt was a bit reminiscent of uh, Edison in uh, uh, Gen Y Cops. I could have done without that, um, but I guess you know it, it does fit with who he is as a person because he is a rapper. But I felt for the character, eh, it was kind of not necessary. It, it made more sense for me because MC Jin one is a better rapper than Edison, and two, the way they use his sort of hip hop identity, I think, is almost kind of make fun of his character. Yeah, is this oh hip hop this youngster who has no respect, and it kind of fit having the whole hip hop persona. Yeah, it, it was okay. It was it was it was short enough. It didn't it it didn't bother me obvi- as quite as much as uh, 
the way they used it in uh, Gen Y Cops. But mm-hmm. I, I still would have, they could have left it out, left that on the cutting room cutting room floor, and I would have been okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there's there's definitely a lot of filmic style here, as you mentioned. They're do, they're they are going for um, grain. There's some anim some some nicely done animation in certain places where they're sort of telling this backstory of why uh, Teddy Robin's character has fallen into this coma because of this old, very famous battle he had with this other Kung Fu master where he got injured. And the music here is is very reminiscent of the Shaw stuff. Teddy Robin uh, is primarily a musician for the most part. He's, he's, he's doing the music here. This is really his first acting role in a long time. Um, right. He, the last time he took on an acting role was like in the mid-90s. Um, and he's primarily stuck around, you know, stuck to doing music and producing for the most part. So I was really, really excited to see him come back on the screen because I always liked the stuff that he did before. I always thought he was very good, you know, as typically in the comic roles that he would undertake with his timing. Um, the interesting thing is, is that this really approaches, I mean, you, you go back and you look at some of the Shaw Kung Fu stuff and it's, it tends to a lot of it tends to border on the fantastic. Here, it, there, even though we're dealing with a lot of the mythology and and stuff that could that's often used as a as a sort of a plot hook in in those old films, it, what's presented here is very very real, in a sense. The fight scenes that were were shown are are very real. The training that they do is is very real. There's no people flying on wires here. Um, and so there's sort of a re- very grounded aspect to a lot of what's going on in terms of the presentation of the Kung Fu and the training that they do, which I really, really liked. Um, you have characters with some really old school names, things like Bronze Rooster and Jade Kieran, <laughs> which, you know, it, it's kind of funny because you would expect to see these, you know, people wearing sort of outlandish, you know, Ming Dynasty costumes with names like this. But then you've got these guys wearing like jeans and plaid shirts um you know and then they come in and they're 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 doing kung fu which is kind of funny um but it still fits and i really felt that this film was it really reminded me of two other films the first one being just one look which i think uh, wong yao nam was also in that and mm-hmm. uh that was sort of ip kam hong's take on old movies and especially like old Kung Fu movies and sort of growing up during the Shaw era and that relationship that people had to films at that time and and the the idea of learning Kung Fu. And this film captures a lot of that same uh, feeling, which I really like. That's because that's one of my favorite films. And also the way that this film, the way that Gallants sort of ends, um, because as you were saying, there's this there's this competition that comes up and it, it sort of takes a very traditional turn in terms of the narrative, but then it ends in a very non-traditional way. And I was very much reminded of the film Throwdown, um, which is about sort of judo and, and it's also a sort of a martial arts movie, but the way it approaches the material, it's got a very sort of solid respect for the practice, for the study, for people who participate in that. And I and I got that sort of same sense towards the the end of the movie here, um, so it was like it, bits and parts of both of those movies m- sort of meshed into this, and I really really came away liking it. Actually, what you reminded me of is that um, the way this this film approached martial arts, as opposed to films like It Man, um, the It Man franchise approached martial arts, is that um, it's very much straightforward about what kung fu is for. If you remember. Um, the Teddy Robbins character has a line. He says, um, "If you want to, if you want to get healthy, then go, go run, go jog, go swim. If you want to fight, that's what kung fu is for." Yeah. It kind of approaches martial arts in this really straightforward manner. You know, nothing about national pride, nothing about Chinese culture. No need to go into patriotic, you know, these over top patriotic, you know, whatever the hell it is. Then um, yeah. that's why I really another really thing that just you just reminded me that's something to like about the film is how it approaches martial arts. Yeah, I, I do I do I mean I do get the sense that the film was kind of made on a budget that is apparent in a few places, but 
but it never really, it was never really a deal breaker for me. Um, I, I, I felt that it was fully enjoyable and I, this was a film I'd watch multiple times and I intend to watch it multiple times. The one thing that I was a little bit disappointed with was because you're given this backstory on the Teddy Robin character, I kept hoping that at some point there was going to be a return and to that somehow, um, which, you know, it, it just never really comes full circle in that aspect. Right. Right. They typed it a few times. Yeah. And again, that sort of, that sort of leads to this sense of realism that the film has um, in, in many ways, which is fine. I'm fine with that, but I was still kind of hoping for a bit more of development of that area. Um, And instead the film sort of played out in, in a different angle. All right, let's move on and talk about some West Screen news for this week. Um, our next bit of news is uh, a little bit video game related, and that is, and it's a little bit older too. This news article is actually coming from towards the end of May, uh, but I came across it just a little while ago. And that is the Mass Effect video game, which has actually um, spawned two video games now, and there's a third one in the works that's due out, I think, sometime in 2011. Um, is due to be made into a movie. And so I think it was our last episode we talked about Prince of Persia and some of the problems that go into, you know, the issues surrounding games that end up becoming movies and um, how they often don't sort of, they're not up to snuff with regard to some some of the writing or some of the story or some of the aspects that are presented. Uh, but I gotta say, I'm pretty excited about this um, because I really love the Mass Effect game. I love the characters, um, but at the same time, I think I'm a little bit worried too with regard to how they might portray it because the the CG that they use in Mass Effect is very very realistic. So the the main character, whose name is Shepard, um, he has a very certain look to him. I think he looks a little bit like Matthew Fox. Um, although that's not who's who's voicing the character, but his outlook um, kind of kind of presents that a little bit, perhaps a little bit like um, 
Uh, who's the who's the guy from Avatar? I can never remember his name. Uh, Sam Worthington. Yeah, Sam Worthington. He's he's sort of got that sort of um, standard generic hero look to him. And but anyway, they're going to be making this into a movie. And I don't know. What do you, do you think? This would be something you'd want to go out and see, Kevin. I think I've officially gotten old, Paul, because I've never heard of this game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more, I'm more excited because I'm, I'm looking down at the bottom of the page. I'm more excited about the Roller Coaster Tycoon movie that's mm. coming up. <laughs> yeah, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Tycoon. That's yes. going to be a classic. Yes, and um, then Sim City, I'm sure will. Well, you know, I've, I, I was listening to some other podcasts, and the, you know, we're, they were talking about the the notion of, you know, the movie to video game kind of move and a lot of people said and sort of as you were saying last week that they felt that on the whole you know prince of persia wasn't a great movie but it wasn't bad and as video game movies go as in terms of adaptions it's actually one of the better ones that's been made and if you go back and you look at things like doom or wing commander um that have just barely been pretty bad in general that uh prince of persia actually in comparison was 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 okay what it was um but then if you take a property like you know a roller coaster tycoon or the sims that's just so totally generic you know there there's no real story there's no real structure to it it's just sort of a simulation how do you turn that into a movie property it, it seems it seems ridiculous that somebody would option that but you know it's optioned so it's it, yeah, it is kind of amazing to see that well, I think uh, Mass Effect would have would be a little easier to adapt than say Roller Coaster, Roller Coaster Tycoon, because it, it it has a it seems to have a narrative. It has a goal. It has a narrative drive. You know, it, it seems like a lot. Actually, a lot of games seems like it would work well in uh, on a big screen, but for some reason, they tend to not. Yeah. Which I have no idea why. I mean, I've seen I've sat through sadly both Tomb Raider movies. And yeah, I don't know what happened. They're they're essentially almost to me. They're almost made with with in a in a cinema narrative, like a theatrical well, narrative. One of the things I think that is very problematic, and this this is probably an issue we could really get more in depth with in a in another discussion, is that when you take a video game, when you when you take something that is first of all something that people love, uh, a title like Mass Effect or like Final Fantasy or some of these others that have attempted to be translated over into cinema, one of the things they're doing is they're first messing with a property that fans already sort of have a, a very strong feeling about. And so anytime you right. do that, you're going to have some margin of those fans who are, un, who are not pleased with the work that's created as it's translated over. That's to be expected. But I think the other problem that they have with doing these games is that you're taking a game that has, you know, especially a game like Mass Effect or perhaps a Prince of Persia that has very strong characterizations, that has, hun, you know, sometimes dozens and dozens of hours of um, voice acting involved. You, you have hours of cutscene footage. I mean, I remember back in the day playing a game like Final Fantasy VII, and it took me, God, I want to say like 30 or 40 hours to complete that game. And much of that time was, you know, there was a whole lot of cutscenes, there was a whole lot of uh, CG. It wasn't great at the time, but it was really sort of developing the story. So you take something like that, you take a property like that, and you say, okay, now we're going to make that, which has taken, you know, a good 20 hours of character development and story development. We're going to compress that down into two. And I think that that's problematic. It's going to leave a lot of people you know, uh, feeling that it's, it's not fulfilling, you know, it's, it's not, it's not satisfying what they want to see. Um, and cause they're going to have to make cuts, you know, your, your favorite character may not get the amount of screen time that you expect, or the characterizations may change, or you may feel the characters aren't well developed because you're used to seeing them developed over this 20 hour span. And now you're seeing that same development sort of compressed into a two hour span. Well, Paul, think about it. I mean, how how much of those twenty hours did you spend having to reset the levels after you died and having to do the whole well, yeah, thing that, all I mean, over but again? But that 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 is that is you know that is a good point. And you know, again, you look at a game like Final Fantasy, and a lot of it's rep repetitive. You're just going around and mm -hmm. 
and fighting a monster and fighting a monster and fighting a monster until you get to the next cutscene. But you do have, in between the battles, you have characters talking with your character and you have, you know, responses. And games today have a lot more um, production value put into them. I, I didn't play it, um, but there's a game on the PS3, uh, Metal Gear Solid 4. And mm -hmm. one of the things they were saying about this game was that it had like over 90 minutes of, of cutscene footage that mm -hmm. was produced for the game. Um, and and, yeah, and the Metal Gear Solid franchise is very much known for their, their attention to the plot. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of them were saying that that one scene itself was like 30 minutes long. It was like basically taking you out of the game and having you watch a movie uh, or part of a movie for 30 minutes before you go on to the next section. So the, the, the line is definitely blurred, but I do think that sometimes these these shifts from one medium to the older medium of film can be problematic in part because it, it, this sense of compression that has to be done. Do you think this new, I guess this new um, addition, adding adding scenes to games, uh, more characterization, more scenes, more more narrative, do you think that might help uh, adaptations of these games for the big screen in the future? Well, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. It, it really depends on on who's doing what. I think I think what makes me more excited is to see is when they do something that's not simply a remake, but it's more of an addition. It's more of a cross-platform uh, kind of marketing in a sense. For example, there's a game called Dead Space, which is sort of like a Resident Evil but science fiction themed. It's kind of like a you know survival horror but in space. And what they did was they decided the video game part that you play is going to take up one chapter of the story. And they said there's actually um, like four chapters in total. Um, so the first chapter is actually a comic book series that you can get and read. And that tells the events prior to what happens uh, uh, on the ship. And then the second chapter um, is um, an animated film that you can buy. And that also tells a different set of events that happens elsewhere prior to what you go through on this ship. So, but it's all interrelated. So it's, I, I like stuff like that. I think that it, it opens up different mediums and it gives different people who produce things in different areas a chance to be creative and contribute to a project rather than saying, okay, well, here's this story that was told in this game, Prince of Persia, or here's this story that was told in this game, Mass Effect, and we're going to go and we're going to redo it now. And even though the, it may have taken players, you know, this long to fully understand this story, we're going to tell the story now in two hours or two and a half hours. All right, let's move on to our next bit of news. Um... And so this next bit of news we have to talk about is about the film called The Cove, and it's running up against some resistance in Tokyo. Uh, Kevin, you want to give us a little bit of a some background on this news story? Sure. Um, the Cove is a documentary uh, made by, I think, American filmmakers about this yearly uh, dolphin hunting tradition that goes on a small coastside or a seaside town named Taiji in Japan. Um, obviously, the film is getting some attention from Japan, uh, in Japan, especially after it won the Oscar for Best Documentary. And um, a lot of the right-wing right conservatives are, who, who, hasn't seen, who haven't seen the film, by the way, they're scared or they already think that it's anti-Japan because it's showing uh, these fishermen, which is a supposedly a century, several centuries-long tradition, um, being sort of um, shown in a negative manner by the Americans. So um, uh, apparently some of these conservative groups have been calling up the theaters that are planning to show the film and essentially threatening that they will put up protests and, uh, and, and, and block the screenings and things like that. And finally, uh, several theaters uh, caved in and uh, decided not to show the film. Um, the same thing happened a few years ago when a documentary named Yasukuni, uh, made by a Chinese filmmaker who was living in Japan, uh, came out in Japan. Uh, came out in Japan, and uh, same thing happened. Uh, right wing groups essentially um, 
call theaters and threatened that they would block the screenings and and police had to show up uh, when when the film first screened. But um, if anyone's learned anything from the Yasukuni example, is that these right wing people is trying to scare people into not showing the film rather than actually doing anything about it. Because I I even I attended a screening of of Yasukuni in Japan and nothing happened. Hmm. So um, what do you think about this, Paul? Do you think uh, anti-Japanese films uh, maybe should be a little more careful? Do, do, do you think this should, the white ringers are right? Or what do you think? Well, I mean, this is Japan. Um, Japan has always been a bit of an enigma, really, uh, with stuff like this. Because on the one hand, they they put out, you know, all these all these movies and these films with themes about you know, protecting the environment and being good to the planet and please save my earth. And um, they, they always tend to seem to have some moral message to them. But then you get a similar kind of film from the outside that's criticizing and you'll get a reaction like this, that they'll take it very personally. So, um, yeah, this seems, this seems very, this seems in, in a way kind of typical for for a reaction that I would expect, but I mean, I guess you would see a you could see a similar reaction in in other societies as well. I'm sure that if uh, you know if the Yakazuni film, for example, I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming it's got a rather negative portrayal of the Yasukuni Jinja, the Yasukuni shrine, and that's why the right wing was protesting about it. But typically, the right wing is very much supportive of, for example, the prime minister and the official activities, the official recognition of the fallen troops and things from World War II, which is always very controversial. I'm assuming that if somebody went and made a very sort of pro-Yasukuni documentary, that you'd have people, groups in China, um, you know, sort of coming out and protesting and being very nationalistic. And so it's, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like, um, you know, and come off sounding like, holier than thou in saying that these groups don't have a right to protest, but I think they do. But I think that the theater um, sort of kowtowing to the protest, that's where the real problem lies. I mean, let the group groups go out and protest. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a right in a democracy in a democratic society is to go out and make your, make your voice known that you don't agree with this, but for the theaters to actually submit to that pressure, I think that's a different issue. I think it's a very much a cultural thing. Um, Japanese people are very worried about um, bringing trouble to their neighbors. Um, the whole idea is called meiwaku. Um, it's something that Chinese people have no idea about, by the way, uh, if I've seen some of my neighbors. Um, it's, yeah, especially it's if, holding... if you look at what's going on at the Shanghai Expo, right? Yeah, <laughs> see, exactly. So, so, yeah, they're very scared about pissing off their neighbors. They're very scared about... Because I think... Um, like most Japanese mini theaters, uh, like the one that that canceled the showing, they're in the middle of a of a commercial buildings. Uh, they don't have the entire building to themselves. They mm-hmm. they tend to be in the middle of commercial buildings, which means they have a lot of neighbors. And if this was to happen, um, I think it might affect their operation in the future if if they are renting these spaces. So they're very much, I think, thinking not only from the side of their neighbors, but also thinking about how they can survive in the future, where the theaters can survive in the future. Yeah. So I can see maybe why they'd be um, scared. But like I said about Yasukuni, is that no one, no one, nothing really happened when Yasukuni came out. Um, the film was was shown in, in these many theaters in Japan. And uh, the white ring groups, you know, I think there were a few protests. Like I said, the police showed up uh, to protect the theaters in the first day, make sure nothing, nothing troublesome happened, and nothing happened. Um, yeah, and I mean that's typically any any time you come out against a film, um, my I'm of the opinion that all you're doing, even if you get a film closed down or you get a film banned, is you're making other people want to go see it that much more, you know. And I I can think of like half a dozen films that were banned in China, right? Um, uh, such as Shushu the Sent Down Girl or Frozen. Or, you know, and as soon as I found out, oh, that, was, that film was banned in China by the, by, by the mainland government, that just makes me want to rush out and see it. You know, it's like, all right, let me, let me, let me see what, what the big deal is. 
if those films hadn't, you know, if they don't come out and ban the films or they don't come out and give it all that attention, you know, my, my interest level might be much less. I may not pay it any mind at all. So sometimes I think that in doing these things that they're actually doing, you know, they're working against their own agenda. Thankfully, uh, the distributor said that they have, they still have 26 screens uh, that will be showing the film. Uh, the one in Osaka, I believe, also showed Yasukuni, so so uh, they have no no problem with the controversy. And um, 55 people, um, I believe they're all, all, all professionals from the industry, including uh, director Yo Sai, Yo Chi Sai, who directed Blood and Bones. They, they issued a joint statement um, supporting the film, or, or more rather uh, denouncing uh, the theaters uh, kowtowing uh, under the white wingers. Hmm. So that's a good thing. I mean, it's, uh, there's still still people who who support the film being shown, uh, where they rather they whether they support the film or not. Uh, personally, I, I kind of started a little. I kind of asked for this earlier this week when I mentioned this on my Twitter, and um, I wrote that um, I suspect the film will be kind of an ethnocentric look at uh, at this 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 tradition and. I wouldn't be surprised if, if it sort of portrays the Japanese people uh, in a negative manner just because uh, or, or they're, they're taking the stance on the issue from a Western point of view where they don't understand the culture. And then um, even then, you know, I, I, I don't I support the film being shown. I think it should be shown and I will get a chance. I will watch it when I get a chance. It's time to move on and talk about our West screen pick for this week. And that is the film from Paris with Love. Um, now, I haven't had a chance to get out and see this, but Kevin, you've seen it um, in all its bald John Travolta glory. <laughs> so why don't you fill us in on the details and your thoughts on it? Sure. Uh, from Paris with Love is the latest film from the team that made uh, last year's Taken. Uh, did you watch Taken, Paul? I haven't seen it yet. That's the Liam Neeson film, right? That's right. It's the Liam Neeson film. It kind of continues that tradition with um, uh, kind of old-fashioned, um, sometimes brutal action, but without much story. But it, it, it paced really quickly, sort of just give you this quick trip in the theater, I guess a really fun ride. And that's um, what From Paris With Love is, except it's not done as well as Taken. Um Anyway, French director Luc Besson, he again comes up with the original story. Uh, it's and again, it's completely shot in France um, because well, that's where Luc Besson's from. So uh, it's about it, it follows the story of uh, ambassador's assistant uh, who is also working secretly for the CIA, um, played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, who's better known as uh, I think playing the, the the King of England in the Tudors. Uh, here he tried to pull off an American accent and and plays this this role, uh, this sort of straight guy role. Uh, anyway, he, he's climbing so up. Can I can I ask a quick question? Is his American accent better than uh, Gyllenhaal's Persian accent from last week? At least it doesn't it doesn't veer you know between Scottish and Irish and an American. Yeah, it's better, but it doesn't make his acting any better. Mm. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more. I'll go into more a little bit later. Um, anyway, so so this character he's climbing up through ranks in the CIA or whatever agency that he's working for because the story is so simple they don't even give his his whatever organization he's working for any names. Um, anyway, the, this organization or agency they they're sending uh, him a partner, uh, Charlie Wax, played by John Travolta in this, like you said, bald and with a big mustache and this sort of. You know, looking like he just came off came off a WWE match or something. Yeah, exactly. I it, when I saw this trailer last week, I thought to myself, "That's Stone Cold Steve Austin." <laughs> I, I thought that's who it was, and then I was like, "Wait, no, that that's John Travolta's voice. What's going on?" And then I says, "It's a fat, bald John Travolta. What happened?" 
<laughs> well, actually, no, it's it's fun because him, you, you've never seen John Travolta in this kind of image. And if you remember him in Face Off and in um, Broken Arrow, you know that John Travolta doing a villain, sort of a badass role is going to be fun. And the best thing is he's not even the bad guy here. He's actually the good guy. He he is the he is like the Teddy Robin, I guess, of this film. He steals the show whenever he shows up because he's this sort of over the top, uh, reckless um, guy who doesn't play quote doesn't play by the rules. You know, he 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 solves things his own way, um, and you know he shoots first and asks questions later. You know, how many more cliches can I use? Um, uh, yeah, so he does that kind of thing, and and of course you got the straight guy, the Jonathan Reese Meyer character who. Who who is acting annoyed the whole time? Who's like, no, no, you can't do that, you know, all that. Um, and it turns out that this Charlie Wax character is in Paris because he's trying to take down um, some kind of drug ring that is linked to a terrorist organization. I would I would tell you more, but that's kind of the problem with the script, is that it's it's trying to move so quickly. The film only one runs about ninety minutes, but it's trying to run through so uh, run itself through so quickly that it sort of just skips all the details. Um, the scene where uh, Charlie Wax starts explaining this whole whole terrorist scheme, um, you see you see um, the Jonathan Reese Meyer character. He's high on cocaine, so he can't even hear anything Charlie Wax is saying. And suddenly he he gets his hearing back, and it just says terrorism. It's about terrorism, and that's all you need to know. Um, and it and it sort of cuts it, and the, the, it's paced really fast. It's 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 a really entertaining film. But there's almost no plot. The plot is so simple. It's just really an excuse to get John Travolta from one action scene to another. One scene, he's holding one machine guns. And the next scene, he's beating up Asian gangsters with batons. And the next scene, he's dropping a bomb on people. And just sort of one after another. And there's really not much in the middle to, to think about. Because the plot is so ridiculous that you don't really need to think anything about it. Um, and of course, as you might expect, there's not much... Not not all that much regard for things like you know character development or emotions, even though the story tries to put in the emotional stuff through the uh, character between the straight guy and his girlfriend. Um, it but then even after a certain twist comes and it kind of changes this character's life, and but then at the end it's just sort of like oh yeah oh that happened, but no we got we got to move on with the end of the movie now. It just sort of forgets anything that it sets up. So the movie is really hard to connect to the movie emotionally. It's really fun to watch and it, it goes by really quick, but that's really all this. You watch John Travolta does his thing and then he goes crazy and a lot of things explode and then you forget half an hour afterwards. So if, if you're just kind of bored on a Sunday afternoon and you have nothing to watch, I think From Paris of Love, I think is a, is a good choice because uh, like I said, there's plenty of, I guess, redeeming quality when it's, when you just see it as a sort of Sunday afternoon movie. But if you're looking for a little more, if you're looking for something that's anything that's actual quality filmmaking, uh, you might not find it here. Hmm. So is this a comedy or is it straight up action? Because in the trailer, it, it makes it look a bit more like a comedy. Um, but from your from your your commentary, you make it sound like it's really more of an action piece. Oh, it's definitely an action piece. Because John Travolta is just doing one action scene after another, and he's finding new ways to kill people. The body count of this film is is uh, very high. I think it's too high even to to sort of consider the comedy. Like, as Travolta has a lot of one liners, and it's fun to watch him. But no, this is just definitely an action movie through and through. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, I guess we can expect to see Mr. Travolta in The Wrestler Two for his next film. <laughs> You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Concast.com for more. All right, I think that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Um, it looks like we will be back next week, possibly, to talk about. Uh, we don't have any Hong Kong films this week. Uh, well, we do have, what do we have? Uh, X, X is coming out, X. but I'm not sure if I'm going to get out to see that or not. Um, you've seen it. We'll talk a little bit about that. There is a Japanese film that I'm dying to see called How to Date an Otaku Girl, but I'm not sure if it's going to have English subtitles or not yet. 
It's um, looking like it will, Paul. But sadly, I'm not dying to know how how did they know Taco Girl? So, <laughs> well, we, we'll we'll talk about one of these two films uh, next week, <laughs> and possibly the new uh, film version of the A Team, which is being released as well. That will do it for this episode. Uh, this episode thirty of East Screen West Screen. We will be back next time. Until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you next time, everybody. And I'm going to turn this over to Kevin. Is the World Cup? Because I know absolutely nothing about the World Cup. Um, <laughs> when you talk about football, the place that I'm from, it's big guys putting on lots of padding and helmets and throwing around something they used to call a pigskin. Um, but when you talk about football anywhere else, it has a completely different meaning. And it is a huge event. I, I do have to give it credit. I'm just not a sports person. I don't follow any sports. Um, so, you know, while people are going bonkers watching the Super Bowl or watching the World Cup or watching the Olympics even, I will probably be off in some room somewhere playing video games, reading a book, or watching a movie. So, Kevin, tell us about the World Cup. <laughs> which which team are you rooting for? Well, the World Cup. Honestly, I, I, I'm not um, big into soccer. Uh, see, that's why I call it soccer, because I'm not big into it. Um, because like you, I think football is, is a bunch of big guys with helmets and holding a pigskin ball, throwing it down 100 yards. Um, but yeah, uh, I pay attention to soccer when the World Cup uh, comes around just because, well, it's big and it's popular. And it's uh, when soccer is fun for me because um, I get to, you know, I don't, I don't really have any national attachments. I mean, I, I'm supposed to be rooting for the American team, but honestly, I don't really... I'm not really that patriotic. And China, China's team, well, China's team is about as hopeful as, let's say, the, 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 the I don't know, Somalia baseball team. That's about how, that's how much hope a Chinese soccer team but, has in the World Cup. But wait, wait, shouldn't they be like getting all the Shaolin monks to <laughs> sign up and, and go out and use their Kung Fu to dominate the sport? I think I think the 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 premier, the, the English teams already bought them up. So, oh. so so no 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 one no one's be paying, playing in their own countries. Capitalism anymore. wins again. See exactly. even even Shaolin monks. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. um, so what so what teams am I rooting for this year? I mean, I I guess I I don't really know much about players or 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 how how certain teams are trending or how they're doing these days but the few teams i usually pay attention to are brazil uh the asian teams uh south korea japan even north korea just to see if they'll run off at the end of their last game um to, to just get away from from going back to north korea um also england um because i guess your typical soccer country uh brazil argentina even france uh depends if we do any headbutting this year we'll see if Zidane, if Zidane does any headbutting this year, maybe I'll watch more. So, mm. so yeah. Um, th but then uh, if you're in Hong Kong, you might not have much um, way to pay attention to it because iCable has bought up the exclusive rights and your free-to-air network will only be airing four games. So um, it's either I have the, the energy to go out um, at night to watch these games until midnight or 4 a.m. or whatever, or... I just don't. So yeah, it's hard to it's hard to be a be a passionate soccer fan this year in Hong Kong. Yeah, I, if you remember one of our very first guests, uh, William Chan, he's a huge soccer fan, and there are many time many nights when he stays up like two or three in the morning to watch the the live games as they broadcast because of the time difference. And you know, there have been many days where he's like messaged me and. You know, he's saying he's basically a zombie going into work. And I said, oh, stayed up late watching the soccer, didn't you? He's like, yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, I've, I can't get into it. I don't know what it is. I it just doesn't hold my interest. Um, even sports video games don't, don't have much use for them. Don't care much for them. Um, not my cup of tea as it were, but it is very big business. And, you know, there's not much more we can say about it.
if your if your teams are playing, I hope they win. Uh, I won't know if they do, because <laughs> <laughs> I won't pay attention. I do remember when I was in China. Um, this was back, I want to say, in two thousand and two, and I was in China. I was in Shanghai, staying at I think a Shanghai Teachers University, and it was during this time the World Cup was going on, and. Was, Some, it, was that the infamous year that China didn't score one goal? No, in their first no, no, appearance? no, 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 no. This it, it was. Um, I want to say it was Korea or somebody had had won a uh, game the Korean, or the Korean Japan World Cup, right? Um, when I it was think so. Games. And and uh, could I don't know. I, mean, I just remember that it was nice. It, I was in the room. I was reading. It was very peaceful. And then suddenly. I thought the, the the campus was under siege because all these people had gone crazy and they were like running around the building screaming at the top of their lungs. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And somebody had told me that basically it wasn't the China team. It was like the Korea team or the, or the Japan team had beaten one of the other teams like Brazil or, or somebody who's, you know, a pretty world, uh, world-renowned team. Again, oh. I don't know. And they were so excited (laughs) that that this Asian team had won, you know, and I, and I was shocked by that because it wasn't, it it wasn't their team, but it was just the fact that an Asian team had won that they were, they were really excited about it. So it can't be Japan because China would never cheer for a Japanese team, even even if it's the only Asia team. Yeah, I'm thinking it was Korea. That's if, if, if memory serves, I could be wrong, but I don't know. I'm not going to go back and look it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my World Cup memory was, uh, I think, four years ago um, when Korea was playing, I think, Mexico, and I was in California at the time, and I decided to go, go to, a, to a bar to watch the game, except I was rooting for Korea, and the rest of the bar was rooting for Mexico. So <laughs> that was, a, was an awkward two hours if, if Korea did well, but I think, thankfully, Mexican, Mexico kicked ass, so mm-hmm. I stayed quiet for a very long time. Did you... Uh... Did you happen to do like a wave of one? <laughs> Just kind of stand up by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it was California, Paul. <laughs> mm. Okay. Point taken. 